Hello and welcome to Millennial 734. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. On today's episode, we are going to discuss the 20th anniversary of 9-11, also Texas making headlines in all the wrong ways, and some drama around singer Olivia Rodrigo's music. Laura, are you like looking up to Jesus right now? I keep seeing you like look up right now. Oh, so I'm actually using my dad's recording setup and he has a monitor behind where my laptop is. And I just realized I was able to shift my uh, show document up there. So I'm not managing everything from my tiny ass laptop screen. I see. So I feel now- like I need to do that because I manage everything from my tiny ass laptop It makes such screen. a difference. You know, typically yeah. I'm recording from my iMac, which gives me, you know, a 24 inch screen to work with. But this week I'm recording from my little MacBook Air and it's just not enough real estate for me. I yeah. need to be, I've got anxiety about my show recording, like stopping halfway through. So I always strategically set it up so that I can always be monitoring it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just makes that a lot easier. Plus, I can see your beautiful faces and you're not covered with other windows. I like this because every time you like look up, I feel like you're you're like, it feels like you're in a big command center or something. <laughs> You're organizing a missile launch. She's our guy in the chair. I'll just be over here like, oh, every time I look at the screen. Couple of (laughs) updates to mention. A few weeks ago, we spoke about Apple and their new child safety features, which were going to be rolled out in the months ahead. Well, because of all the critical feedback, they are going back to the drawing board. Now they're saying we're going to delay these features and think about them more. So... We don't know if this is necessarily a good thing. We'll see the solutions they come up with, but we will update everybody once they announce the updated changes. Also, don't expect booster shots to begin happening this month after all against COVID-19. So I think we spoke about this on the show. The Biden administration said that beginning in September, everyone would be able to uh, start getting their third shots. Well, now federal regulators warned that they may not have enough data to recommend boosters for anyone except certain recipients of the Pfizer vaccine by late September. So sounds like we're going to be waiting a little longer. So I will no longer be uh, getting ready to camp out for the big midnight release of shot number three. (laughs) We'll shelve that for now. Also, I just wanted to take a moment to say, speaking of COVID, I was very wrong about people starting to wear masks again. When the Delta variant came into existence and rose, I said on the show probably two, three months ago at this point, people aren't going to go back to wearing masks. We're done. Now I walk around like 90% of people are wearing masks. It has restored my faith in humanity. (sighs) That's impressive for Las Vegas. Yeah, here, here. Especially because you guys have so many tourists coming. A lot of tourists, a lot of Republicans, you know, a lot of people drinking the anti-COVID Kool-Aid and all that, I think. I have to say, it really depends on where you are. Um, So within the Atlanta perimeter, absolutely 100%. Well, I can't say 100%, but... The vast majority of people are masking. They're masking correctly. They're not doing dick nose, you know, all the things you love to see. Uh, You step two feet outside of the Atlanta perimeter, however, and it's a different story. So just important to be cognizant of that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's been huge mess ups up here, too. Honestly, I don't know if you guys saw this. It was trending for a couple of days on Twitter, but there was a teacher that is employed in the district that exists in my home county. 
And I guess they took their mask off or shifted it down so they could read to the children. And they were not vaccinated by choice. And they ended up infecting 22 people. Oh, my God. And yeah, Yeah. the San Francisco Chronicle had this amazing, I mean, like terrifying, but amazing map of how the desks are laid out in this classroom. And just seeing how many of the kids just in that classroom contracted COVID because of this teacher's choices Mm. is insane. Yeah. So obviously what I shared is anecdotal and what Laura even shared about Atlanta and the, you know, the outside area. But I really I did not expect as many people to start wearing masks as has been the case, because when the mask mandate started coming down, people took off their masks really quick. I mean, a day or two after Biden made that announcement, I walked in the food store and like maybe 20 percent of people were wearing masks. And now that's all you see again. So. It, it made me happy. I'm glad. Is it people mandatory are where you where you both are? Yeah, but like, what is mandatory now? Like, are employees actually going to stop people if they're not well, wearing a mask? I mean, look, I don't really go to that many stores, but the stores that I tend to go to have greeters at the door. So Costco is enforcing the mask mandate. Uh huh. For example, okay, and they have signage up. Target as well always has like a greeter by the door and. They've been doing a good job just saying like, oh, did you forget your mask? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Which is mean- a very smart way to do it because you, you would like to, you know, shaming people sometimes works better than just saying, can you put your mask on? When I walked into Target a few days ago, there. so first of all, God bless Target. They have been on top of cleanliness this entire pandemic. If you go into any Target over the past year, you see somebody right at the front, like Pam mentioned, they're wiping down the carts right in front of you, showing that they're doing that. They're lining up all the carts, all the clean ones ready for you. I love that. Way to go, Target. But when I was there last week, in addition to that person, there was a jacked security guard, and he was probably watching for the people who were coming in without their masks Amazing. on. I would not want to F with that guy. This guy was ripped. And then he said hi to me. I was like, well, you're way too friendly for somebody who looks so tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, Pam, it's really hard for me to say one way or the other. I mean, I know City of Atlanta proper, of course, went back to requiring masks. Um, but I've definitely found myself in plenty of pa- places where people just aren't wearing them. And um, I don't know if it's a corporate culture thing um, where some places are doing better of enforcing it than others, or if it's just exhausted service industry employees who are just tired of putting up with people's shit <laughs> and aren't pushing it anymore. Um, but I would say that I still see uh People not masking fairly often, unfortunately. Well, the Delta variant didn't stop you two from going to a movie theater over the weekend. It did not. I didn't quite do the Pam G like early morning movie special, (laughs) but we did go earlier in the day because we knew that the theater was not going to be crowded. And Uh... indeed it wasn't. It was it was literally us. And then there were like three people three other people in the theater, uh, like several rows behind us. So we felt pretty comfortable, uh, but we definitely did not want to go to an evening showing because we knew it was going to be packed. So I broke away from my usual and I went to a very late night showing on <gasps> Thursday because oh, I was having trouble goodness. sleeping. So I thought that I would do that. But I checked the seating map before I, you know, 
took myself over to the theater and I felt comfortable doing that because they had so many the like they had so many screens playing the movie that it just felt like I wasn't going to have to worry about going into an overly packed theater. And there were maybe about 30 people in there, but it was all spread out. And I had no problem keeping my mask on the whole time because, you know, it's dark in there and I wasn't eating anything anyway. So <laughs> that definitely made me feel oh. a little bit better about going. Yeah. So we're talking about seeing Shang-Chi. Laura and Pam have seen it. I have not yet. What did you two think? This is the big new Marvel movie, the first Marvel movie, first Disney movie to hit theaters exclusively. You can't see it on Disney Plus right now. I don't know. I thought Pam, it was so I much feel like, fun. Yeah. Okay. I was like, do I want to let the movie <laughs> buff go first? I had a really, really good time with it. It was a fun ride for sure. Aquafina, in my opinion, was the main character of the movie. <laughs> she was amazing. I loved her. Um, the only critique I would give it is that I felt like, um, in, in the middle, it was slow in some parts. Um, but that's really the only, uh, critical thing that I would say about it. Everything else was a lot of fun. The visuals were stunning. Uh, and I thought that they paid, uh, some homage to Kung Fu movies too. Like it was clear the movie was geared towards an American audience, but, when they were showing fight scenes and things like that, you could tell that they were leaning on some of the more traditional cinematography and um, choreography and stuff. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, yeah, it, it's just so it's so much fun. I agree that it got a little bit slow right in the middle or like towards right before like the the last act, yep. basically. But I think that that's fairly normal. Mm -hmm. For even like the most action packed of movies. And I get that they were trying to set up the uh, general trajectory of his arc. So it kind of, I'll forgive for that. Yeah. But it was a really solid, strong entry. And I'm really excited to see how he fits into the next phase of the MCU. Yeah. Great origin story. Now, Shang-Chi, the film, broke Labor Day box office records. The movie, like I said, it wasn't available day and date on Disney Plus like Black Widow. So the big question was how many people would come out despite the Delta variant. They made $90 million over the holiday weekend, which I think surprised a lot of people. A, because of COVID, but B, because this is a name, this is a Marvel character that many, many less people are familiar with. So... What does that say, necessarily? I mean, it got good reviews. I'm sure that was helpful. Obviously, there's a loyal Marvel fan base. Maybe people were also just really itching to go back to the movies and were looking for a good excuse. Yeah, perhaps. And I, I think also, since it wasn't available uh, for purchase on Disney+, Plus, that probably helped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> especially for... I think a lot of people... Oh, go on. I was going to say, especially for the people who have um, really gotten into the Marvel franchise. I mean, there are, of course, the Marvel super fans who are always going to be there. But there are also a lot of casual Marvel fans who want to be up on the story now. And and I think that, you know, the D Disney plus Marvel television series have really helped with that as well. They've been uh... doing a really good job of keeping people on the hook and and adding these uh, different pieces to the story that's going to set up what we see 
on the big screen as you know they continue to release some of these newer movies that are still coming down the pipeline. Um, I think one thing though that really kind of helps uh, Shang Chi is that first of all you can tell that uh, the people that were involved behind the scenes it was really important for them to do this one right because the comics have so much racism in them and they lean so heavily on caricatures of Asians and stuff like that as well. So I think everybody involved kind of knew that there was a lot writing on this. Um, But also I think what really helps this is that on top of being a Marvel movie, like Laura alluded to, it really does kind of, it is at its heart a Kung Fu movie. And I think that there's a huge market for movies like that, like Bruce Lee, uh, Jackie Chan, movies that incorporate that into the the fabric of their storytelling have always done really well uh, around the world. So, and I, I just feel like we haven't really seen one of those really pop off on the mainstream side of things here in our country. And so it kind of is like a little bit of an homage to that. And so I think it might, you know, appeal to audiences that aren't just coming for the comics. Yeah. Yeah. So Shang-Chi's box office success might be good news for the future of movies and going to see a movie in a theater. There was a lot of talk too. Can movies survive after COVID? And so far, so good, even though we're still in COVID. Like Laura has said a couple of times on the show, we're, we're all just learning to live with the virus like this time a year ago. Despite there being as many cases now as there were over the winter here in the U.S., this time a year ago, we never would have dreamed to go into a movie theater right now. And yes, we no. are vaccinated now. That's the big difference. But still, like the Delta variant is is very dangerous. Um, but yeah, we're all just sort of like, well, it exists. You know, maybe I'll get it. Maybe I won't. But at least I'm vaccinated. It's less scary yeah. now that we've been living with it for a year and a half. It is It is a really weird space to be living in. And I wonder if we can draw some comparisons between this and story we'll be talking about next um, as we dive into the you know heart of the show, that things can turn shitty and people adapt and kind of mold their lives and routines around the shittiness and learn how to live with it. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that's a theme we pull out of uh, our next discussion. Yeah. Well, before we do that, we have some new listeners supporting us and we wanted to say thank you, right, Laura? That's right. So our latest patrons are Elizabeth, Fatima, Lauren, Tammy, Katrin, Parker, Sabrina, Muriel, Mike, Marguerite, Alex, Catherine, The Unfoundables, Taylor, Jade, and Brian. Thank you guys so much for your support. We are so, so glad to have you. Definitely. Thank you very much. And coming up in After Dark today on our Patreon, Laura has a little story related to uh, something going on in her life. And we also are going to extend our discussion on 9-11 by talking about the good things that occurred 20 years ago. So we are going to reflect on 9-11 today because we have to. It's an, it's an important anniversary, especially with uh, us recently leaving Afghanistan. But then we'll put a lighter cap on it. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash millennial and pledge today. Your support helps us keep the show rocking and rolling. And we really appreciate everybody's support. We truly could not do it without you. 
Okay, so let's turn to our three main topics today, starting with, like I just mentioned, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This is an important anniversary, not only because it's been 20 years, but because the war in Afghanistan just ended about a week ago, and we touched on that a little bit. We're not going to a lot today. I would just reiterate that Biden's pullout of the country has been a gigantic mess. It's a shame that everything's yeah. gone down the way it did. It it was always going to be a mess. Um, it was just a game of hot potato uh, to decide whose administration was going to have the mess. And it just so happens that it's Biden's. But that said, you do have to wonder, could a different administration have handled it even slightly better? I think we'll the original know. I think the original administration that got us into that conflict could have handled it better. Is that sarcasm? No, I'm serious. Oh, the Bush administration? Yes. Why do you think they could have handled it better? Because ultimately we invaded Afghanistan and uh instead of keeping our and I have a lot of opinions about whether or not we should have invaded there. But if we want to assume that we were going to go ahead and do that and that we were all on board for it, you would think that uh, staying, you know, keeping your eyes on the prize instead of dividing Mm. your troop presence so that you can invade Iraq like a year and a half later. Yeah, that was a bad move. Fair, fair. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, so we millennials, (laughs) we all grew up in a post 9-11 world, really. I was 12 years old. I was in seventh grade. You two were also probably around the same age. Yep. And um, do we all remember exactly where we were when we found out? I remember being in my seventh grade English class and they made an announcement over the school intercom that America was under attack or something to that effect. And we were sent home from school. What do you two remember about finding out or that day? I think it's interesting hearing your perspective, Andrew, because, of course, you grew up in New Jersey. So geographically, Mm. we're a lot closer to the events of that day. Um, My school did not send anyone home. Some parents came to take their kids home. Um, But we stayed in school the whole day. Classes were canceled. Um, I remember when the news broke, there was no formal announcement made, but we all got sent back to our homeroom classrooms and our teachers just turned the TVs on. And I remember I watched, uh, I watched the second plane hit and I watched the, the first tower collapse live on TV. Uh, and I, I didn't know what it meant, honestly, at the time. I, I was 12, like you. I didn't really, I didn't know what the World Trade Center was. So I, at the time, did not understand the significance. So I have a little bit of a different perspective because I grew up on the West Coast. And so we were three hours behind. Um, so I was Mm. still at home because all of this was happening at what, like 9 a.m. in New York. And so it was six in the morning for us, which is about the time that we would be getting up to get ready for school because my mom's single mom. So she would always drop us off off early and stuff like that. And that day, it just so happened that I had gotten up before she came to wake us up. And I went into her room and I saw the second plane hit live. And I said, oh, I said, are you watching a movie? Because she usually did watch the news. And she said, no, that's the news. And so she said, well, go wake up your brother because he should probably see what's going on. And so we watched until we went to school and they 
did not send us home. I think just because they, you know, like we were not geographically very close, but I do remember there was a lot of uh, just, you know, apprehension and unease about whether it was just going to be targeted attacks on the East Coast or whether they were going to go for like larger landmarks. So, yeah, we had no idea for us. It would have been like the Golden Gate Bridge because it's kind of like iconic imagery for you know, America. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that like the protocol for my school must have been to just try to keep things business as usual. So we did have classes, but I do remember every teacher I had like started the period by asking if anybody wanted to talk about anything because you never know if kids have relatives on the East Coast or if anybody had family flying or anything like that. So yeah, yeah. Laura, your point about me being close to New York is a good one. I hadn't thought about that, at least not recently. And I I was not just close to New York, but I was smack in the middle between D.C. and New York, both yep. about a two hour drive away. And, you know, also not far from that where the Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. So I guess maybe those were the reasons why they decided to send us home. Of course, this is all very uncomfortable to relive and and to the point about not knowing what was going to happen next a documentary i'm gonna name in a few minutes actually discusses this as well with george bush like i think it's easy to forget looking back now but we really because this attack on america blindsided us we had no clue what else could be coming and actually at the time there is also concerns that there would be more attacks in the days ahead it was an extremely uncertain time yeah all the all flights got grounded we have to remember that right for i don't even remember how long but it was at least several days that you couldn't fly anywhere people were stranded all kinds of places i thought we could also talk about today the world before 9-11 versus after because again we grew up primarily in a post 9-11 world, at least the portion of our lives that we can remember so far. You know, it was all the post 9-11 world. And here's the big thing that I wanted to talk about today. Air travel before 9-11 was so different. I never flew into until 2006, so I never knew another way than the post 9-11 world. Um, History.com summarized it. Before 9-11, people didn't have to have a ticket to wander around the airport or wait at the gate. No one checked passengers' IDs before boarding the plane. And the only item people had to remove when passing through security was loose change from their pockets. Airports didn't even bother running background checks on their employees and checked baggage was never scanned. That's all mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I flew before 9-11 and... I actually remember because my dad, for his work, he used to travel quite a bit. And when I was a little kid, we would go to the airport to pick him up. And my mom and I would go out to the gate to meet him and or drop him off either way. And I remember being a little kid, I would stand at the windows uh, and I would like wave at the pilots and they would usually wave back at me. And it is so bizarre to think that there was a time where that something like that was possible because it's unfathomable now, you know? Yeah, we would, um, my great grandparents would come to visit and I, I, we did fly before, but I really don't have any recollection of like getting on the plane. It's most of my memories are just like, I want to order ginger ale and like, you know, more pretzels. <laughs> That's <laughs> Cam's big memory. 
But um, but yeah, I mean, like we used to go pick up my great grandparents from the airport. They would fly in from San Diego to San Francisco and we would always go take them all the way to the gate and we would wait with them until their planes left. You know, we'd still be able to see them going through. And so I have vivid memories of that. And I also have memories of learning that it was not going to be possible to go through the gates anymore, like all the way through. You could wait it. You can wait at baggage claim now, but you can't go like into the terminals. And the first thing I said was like, well, how are we going to go get, you know, great grandma and great grandpa? My mom being like, well, like they're just going to have to walk out and we're just going to pick them up from out there. And I just remember thinking that that was so sad. Yeah. That we couldn't go all the way to the gate with them to wait. I want them to bring me fresh ginger ale straight off the plane. You want it the moment <laughs> they step off. Priorities. <laughs> you know what also is interesting to me about this? The airport terminals are crowded enough with the passengers, at least these days. So I can't imagine those sending off their loved ones also being in these terminals like you think about how when people line up to board a plane it's a mass crush for the gate i mean you could potentially double the number of people hanging around at these gates even like all of those you know there's so many movies from the 90s or like the right before early 2000s they have these big like airport moments like you can't do that anymore right like love actually has you know it starts it begins and ends at an airport yeah or sleepless in seattle too there's a huge moment at an airport as well and i wanted to bring this up too you look alone or tv shows like (laughs) 90s tv shows seinfeld like you look at that now and you're like this isn't canon why why are they shooting this here i will say in in defense of this old trope pre-9-11 airlines were not cramming nearly as many people into their planes so there is a lot more traffic now and i wonder if a big part of it is the increase in passengers that are being crunched into a single pressurized tube That's fair. And the fact that our airports aren't being upgraded to keep up with the times. Thanks, government. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's just so interesting to look back on how air travel worked prior to 9-11. Of course, one of the big creations after 9-11 was the TSA. And I know we've debated on this show the effectiveness of the TSA. Sometimes stuff gets through security and you wonder how that happened. And it can be concerning because if some stuff is accidentally making its way through. What else might be making its way through? And are these people who watch, you know, the, the the metal detectors and scan the bags? Like, are they paying attention? I think I've expressed my concern before. Like, these people don't look like they're paying close attention. And I know part of it is they're working long hours, and I totally understand that. But then they need to hire more employees to make sure nobody's... Wow. I doubt they're being paid enough as well. I mean, yeah. if you're being paid a shitty wage, you're only going to care so much about your job. And so I, anytime I have a frustrating interaction with someone in TSA, I try to remember that. I'm like, this is a very stressful job. They take shit off people all the time, and they're probably not being paid very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. I mean, there have been so many instances of reports coming out showing that there were, um, you know, fake bombs passed through um, carry-on luggage and, and checked baggage as a means of testing TSA. And they miss 
ridiculously high percentages of these things, which really Mm. makes you wonder how effective is this? I mean, I told the story on the show about how one time I accidentally flew cross country with a blunt in my (laughs) backpack that they never caught. I didn't do it on purpose. I just forgot it was there. Yeah. So, of course, after 9-11, there was a lot of uh, anti-Muslim violence. Surveillance increased with the creation of the Patriot Act. That was created six weeks after 9-11. And ever since then, there's been a ton of debate around surveillance in this country. And of course, the Patriot Act, the longstanding rules meant to protect Americans from unreasonable search and seizure were loosened or thrown out after 9-11 in the name of national security. Like I said, that's still a big problem today. And like I said before, there was a sense after 9-11 that more attacks would occur. Luckily, none have. And maybe we do have to credit the Patriot Act and the TSA and other forms of security that were created after 9-11. But I wanted to ask you to today, here we are 20 years later, do you feel safe from another 9-11-like attack today? I think that we have, a, this is going to sound really bleak. I don't know if it would be exactly the, the same kind of attack, but we've seen, even over the last couple of years, how lacking our infrastructure, <laughs> our electric, our energy grids are. And those things leave us um, hugely vulnerable in a way that wouldn't necessitate a group uh, killing a few thousand people in one fell swoop like they did on 9-11 to cause chaos. Um, I think that we're open and vulnerable to um, attacks that could potentially be worse in a lot of ways. I don't I, I'm sorry, and I'm not trying to be a downer. I just want to be real with y'all. I mean, look at what happened with the Colonial Pipeline just a couple months ago. Right. No, you're right. I, I also think that you're right. I think that even with 9-11, there, there's, even before that, there was a false sense of security. I think even when you mm-hmm. look at some of the the ways that, you know, even the the news framed what was happening in real time in 9-11, a lot of it was like, this isn't supposed to happen in America. But the reality is that stuff like this happens all over the world all the time. It doesn't discriminate in terms of like, whether a country is a developing country or a developed country, it would just be unwise to think that it was a, a one-time event and and never again, because you never really know. Right. And like Laura said, it, it tragedy is possible, and it's possible for it to manifest in different ways. Yeah. What do you think, Andrew? I think so much time has passed that we've let our guard down. And I mean, that's the reason why... 9-11 was so shocking as well. We just never expected su- such a attack to happen in this country. And here we are 20, 20 years later, and I feel like we would all be as shocked as we were when 9-11 occurred 20 years ago. I just feel like our guard is down. I'm hopeful that something like this will never happen in this country again. I agree with the points that you two made. And then also we have domestic terrorists who are a major threat and gun violence. And of course, now pandemics are at the front of our mind as well. But 9-11 was just obviously so unique. Will something like this happen again with planes or some other mass form of transportation? I don't know about that. I I like to think that we've improved. I wanted to mention, are you two planning on watching any of these like 9-11 documentaries or special coverage? 
it's all a bummer. Yeah. I So I have to be honest. I'm really not sure if I want to do this. I know yeah. that it's I know that there are some great, um, you know, 20, 20 year um, anniversary documentaries and things coming out. And some of them even have additional information that maybe we didn't know at the time. But I I feel like I lived it. I mean, as I said earlier in the discussion, I remember watching the towers fall live on TV. And I remember I have very clear memories of the invasion of Afghanistan, then the subsequent invasion of Iraq. And it just felt like 9-11 kind of started like a chain reaction of violence and war that defined our youth in a lot of ways. Like it was always the backdrop. So there's a part of me that's like, I don't know that I want to watch this. Yeah. I, I watched part of this Apple TV plus one in preparation for the show because I saw oh, okay. you had it in here and I wasn't sure if you wanted to discuss it with anybody. But yeah, my one big qualm with a lot of these documentaries is I think that people just have to remember that documentaries are not really meant to be objective. And I just think that like, specifically with this one, when you're looking back 20 years, it's very easy to like, romanticize is not the right word. I guess reframe is probably better. Reframe the narrative of like why things happened the way they did. And I just think that we all need to be mindful of that when we're tuning into stuff like this. Yeah. Because it was a bit of a clusterfuck and there's no way that like, like you had this note about George Bush. There's no way that that was the first thing that was running through his head right. when all so, of this was happening. No. So there's this Apple TV Plus documentary it just came out called 9-11 Inside the President's War Room. And it has new interviews with George Bush, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, and others in the Bush administration. And I thought that'd be interesting, so I decided to watch it. And what Pam's getting at is in it, Bush says the reason he sat there in the Florida classroom when he learned the news of the attack for so long is he wanted to give off the impression that everyone should remain calm and that's an important part of being a leader. That's what he said. Now, some people may have forgotten, he received a lot of criticism for the fact that he sat in that Florida classroom watching kids read a children's book for as long as he did. And it fit very well with the narrative that George Bush was a terrible president (laughs) and he was scared and he didn't know what to do. I think most people, looking back in hindsight, would say, I would have gotten the hell up and gotten out of that damn classroom straight away. And the other thing, the reason that this also became a big story is because there was media there and they were all trained on Bush because all those camera guys knew what was happening in New York and they wanted to see what Bush was going to do. He didn't do shit. He sat there reading a children's book. So I didn't buy for a second his excuse, like, in a in a moment like this, you need to show calm. It's good for the country. I agree, Pam. Hindsight 2020 had time to think up this yeah. excuse, you know. Also, like, I just, I can't imagine a world where whoever decided to go tell him didn't say, we just need you to sit here because we don't know where we're going to take you. And this is right. the safest place you can be right now. So just, like, sit and look pretty and we'll... We'll let you know when when we have to vacate the premises, because like, where else was he going to be? Well, I also have to think that he was uh, acutely aware in that moment of the vast amount of intelligence his administration had received in the months leading up to this attack. 
warning them that something like this could happen. So it is hard to believe that what was rolling through his mind in that moment was, I must project calm. Right. (laughs) Because I'm sure he was freaking out internally. How could you not? How could you not? You know, I would probably be a deer in the headlights, too. But that's why I would never run to be president. (laughs) I would be terrible. (laughs) But you know what? It's it's okay to admit that, though. Right. Right. Like you're talking about like unprecedented times. It's okay to be like, I could not process what they were telling me. And I was trying to like make heads or tails of where we go from here because we had never experienced anything like this before. That's okay. And guess what? Like half of international relations and political science is trying to come up with answers to problems that nobody knows the answer to. Mm -hmm. And it's also okay to admit 20 years later. A ton of time has passed. You're not yes. running for president or office ever again. Just come clean. Everyone just thinks you're like the cute guy that shares candy with Michelle Obama <laughs> and right. paints in your like fancy schmancy Texas house. We forgot yeah. you're a war criminal. Yeah, really. Time and distance has been very kind to persons of Bush. <laughs> yeah, to Bush, to Carl, even like all those guys that are in that document documentary Carl Rove Dick well, Cheney. Carl Rove. It's just like Cheney. You're you're kind of meant to Pissed feel me for all Carl Rove. I felt Oh my disgusting. god, yeah. I saw him pop up and I wanted to throw up. Like <laughs> <laughs> he starts like crying and you're definitely supposed to like feel feel for him, but uh so, you know, watch this documentary with a grain of salt. That's that's yeah. but still it's interesting. It's bring it is, bring it your is. bark bag. And Sounds again, like. for, for those of us who were young at the time, it's good to get a play-by-play of what happened. And speaking of a play-by-play of what happened, I have watched these on YouTube numerous times over the years. I'm a media junkie. So from time to time, I've gone on YouTube and typed in something like CNN first report in 9-11, the Today Show first report in 9-11. And on YouTube, you can find the entire day's coverage from every network as they covered 9-11 in real time. It's a dark thing to watch. You will feel very sad when you watch and relive it. But as somebody who's interested in media, I have found it very interesting to see how things unfolded minute by minute, even prior to when the first plane struck the World Trade Center. Have you watched those, either of you? I I, I have, and I watched them for school because, oh. because 9-11 now, even when I was you know studying journalism at school, It's a great example of how sometimes in news, you have to make ethical decisions on your feet. Like you have to think on your feet and somebody has to decide whether um, something is too gruesome and too graphic for the general public to witness and whether it still is that, but is necessary for people to understand and have some kind of like concept of just how bad things are. Um, so we watched it for that reason. Um, also like for photojournalistic reasons and integrity reasons as well. Um, just like the way that the coverage was handled for something that we all live through in our lifetime from a journalism perspective is, um, is fascinating in a very dark way, but you really learn a lot about how to navigate. Um, something in real time that's happening in real time. And and I think that it really 
it was really hard to sit in that classroom with everybody that was sitting with oh, me and yeah. to watch some I of the stuff, like just like people. hours and hours and hours of footage, uh, some stuff that like was never released to the public as well, because, you know, again, um, editors and producers have to make decisions on what goes on the air and what does not. Yeah. Um, but it was important to to prepare us for the next step, which has to do with a lot of that. Sometimes you see things you don't want to see. So like shout out to all the journalists that were on the ground and keeping everybody informed because yeah. um, the one good thing about this Apple TV Plus documentary is that I appreciated that at one point they did mention that they were just getting news from the news, which is why it's so important to make sure that, yeah. you know. Uh, news stays protected yeah and it's just also interesting to see what the what people were speculating in those initial moments and of course it's also interesting and again very dark and sad to see them with their cameras trained on the world trade centers as the second tower is struck and as both towers fall and and seeing how they react in real time is very interesting to look at so like i said (laughs) You're not you're not going to feel good when you watch all this. Prepare to have something later to watch afterwards. But it is it is interesting to see. It's hard to talk about. It's awkward to talk about. But I think, Andrew, as as you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, it's, I think, doubly important. One, because of the anniversary, um, you know, as children who grew up during this. Um, but then also given the end of the Afghanistan war just last week. I mean, yeah. It, it it came in this very ugly full circle. Yeah. And of course, our thoughts are with anyone who's, you know, maybe mm-hmm. this is a especially difficult day because, you know, somebody who fought in one of the wars, if uh, you lost somebody during 9-11, uh, we're thinking of you. Well, changing gears, we are recording on Labor Day and the financial markets are closed today, but I actually I'm looking forward to seeing how this week goes on the stock market because it was just reported that despite all the bad news in the world with COVID and everything else, the U.S. markets continue to actually do really, really well. And for that reason, it could be a very good time to invest. And we have a sponsor who can help you do that. This week's episode is sponsored by Public.com. They make investing easy and help you make wise investment decisions. Public.com will make you feel confident in your investments because the app has a major social component. You can follow people, including Laura and I, to see what we're investing in, and you can see why we're investing in these stocks. I love looking at why people invest in certain stocks because it's great knowing you're not going at this alone. And if you have a question, is this a good stock to invest in? They're talking about that on Public.com. What I also love is that they put stocks together in themed collections so you can easily find the companies who you're already passionate about, like tech companies, cannabis companies, plant-based movement companies, green energy companies, all kinds of things. Personally, I'm more comfortable investing in companies and ideas that I believe in, and that strategy has actually worked very well for me. Public.com is the easiest and nicest looking stock app, so you won't feel like it's out of your league, unlike other trading apps, which are just very confusing. In short, it's the place to go to trade with confidence. We have a special offer to get you started. Use code MILLENNIAL when you download the app to let public.com know you're coming from Millennial, and you'll get up to $50 in free stock to get started in growing your portfolio. Again, that's code MILLENNIAL for up to $50 in free stock. Valid for U.S. residents 18 and over, subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. 
All right. Well, jumping from 2001 to 2021, uh, we have an update um, with regards to Texas this week. So we spoke on episode 722 earlier this year about Texas Governor Greg Abbott signing a law that would ban abortions in the state as early as six weeks into pregnancy. That law went into effect last Wednesday, despite 1973's Roe v. Wade decision, which established a constitutional right to the procedure. It also makes no exceptions for victims of rape or incest and provides very narrow exceptions for cases where the mother's life might be at risk. This amounts to nearly a complete ban on abortions in Texas. So before we jump into what happened and how this happened, I just kind of wanted to give y'all space for some initial reactions. I know we were talking about this in our Slack um, the night of while we were waiting on pins and needles to see if the Supreme Court was going to do anything. That was my initial reaction. I cannot believe Trump got three Supreme Court picks. That's the first thing I thought of, too. It's impossible not to think about that when something like this happens on a state level. Yeah. And this is why anytime we're talking elections, particularly presidential elections, why we constantly try to drive the point home for people that whoever sits in that chair will have the ability to appoint Supreme Court justices. This is effectively a lifetime uh, appointment. And now the court, because Trump was able to uh, appoint three of his own justices, the court is so lopsided in favor of conservative ideologies at this point that it was only a matter of time before we got here. And that was really the crux of what we talked about on episode 722. Um, But I thought that it would be interesting for us to dig into why this law is different. We've definitely talked about other heartbeat bills in other states on this show before, and they always get challenged in courts and inevitably fail. But there's a very particular reason that this one didn't. And it's because the Texas law... um, differs from these other heartbeat bills because the state won't actually be enforcing it. Instead, the bill or the law deputizes private citizens to sue anyone who performs an abortion or aids and abets one. So because it's not actually the state enforcing it, there were no state officials named as potential defendants, making it hard to know who to sue to block the law. So, so the U.S. Supreme Court would have needed to block it before September 1st when the law was slated to take effect. Uh, the court, we didn't hear anything from them uh, leading up to, you know, the minutes clocking down before midnight that evening. And it ultimately came out later that the court refused to block the law in a five to four vote with Chief Justice John Roberts siding with the only three liberal justices. So it makes it pretty clear um, where these votes fell. I wanted to actually share a bit from John Roberts' dissent that he wrote. He said, the statutory scheme before the court is not only unusual, but unprecedented. 
the legislature has imposed a prohibition on abortions after roughly six weeks and then essentially delegated enforcement of that prohibition to the populace at large. The desired consequence appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility for implementing and enforcing the regulatory regime. So just to really drive this home, I want to make it very, very clear. Plaintiffs who have no connection to the patient or the clinic that performs an abortion can sue, recover legal fees, and win $10,000 if they win the suit. Like it's a freaking game show. Yeah, you it's won, yeah. and here's an extra 10 grand. It's the Wild That's West. Wild. Yeah. Because it's, it just makes it easier for these, you know, pro-life organizations to raise money, sue anybody that performs an abortion, and then use that money to keep suing more people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about this notion of putting of the state putting the enforcement of this law 100 percent in the hands of private citizens And I just want to know what slippery slope effects could we see coming from this? I mean, just like like what's this? It's pretty bad. I mean, this is a really um, this is like so catastrophic for women that that are unfortunate enough to live in the state. But then like what's next after this? You know, like what other rights are private citizens going to um, to then have to to sue anybody they deem to be breaking some other law that, you know, shouldn't really be put into place. Everyone should have a gun. Everybody should be straight. Right. If we or see you like, without a gun or being gay, I don't know. I'd the first you. thing, the first like thought that runs through my mind is like possession for marijuana, say. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. you know, which is again like there's so many states that have legalized that. Um, there is many much information out there that proves that it's it's really not like the the dangerous drug that uh, we were led to believe for a long time. So what's to stop Texas or any state really from imposing this type of law? Yeah. And kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, because, Pam, you raised a great point about what kind of legal precedent does this set? So more than 370 Texas lawyers signed an open letter this spring, which said that a central flaw to this law is its attempt to confer legal standing on abortion opponents who were not themselves injured. And a great example of this actually came from Professor Melissa Murray. Um, She's a law professor at New York University. And she said, if the barista at Starbucks overhears you talking about your abortion and it was performed after six weeks, that barista is authorized to sue the clinic where you obtain the abortion and to sue any other person who helped you, such as the Uber driver who took you there. (sighs) So that's. Ultimately, I mean, that's one of the first slippery slope effects that we might see from something like this. And to your point, Pam, this establishes a precedent for how other controversial issues might be legislated in the future in the state of Texas and any other state that decides to follow Texas's suit. Right. I mean, are they also banking on people hurting, like being strapped for cash and thinking, well, this is an easy way to make, you know, depending on how many people they sue for being involved with, you know, somebody's right to decide whether or not they want to grow a human in their body. Yeah. 
And it's it is interesting that you bring that up because some uh, some who are perhaps more on the uh, who are more moderate on this issue or who might be more on the right to life side of this issue are saying, hey, claimants are still going to be expected to build a case against targets that they believe obtained an illegal abortion. Right. Um, So. Just because somebody mounts a lawsuit against a clinic or an Uber driver or a specific doctor for something like this does not automatically mean they're going to win that lawsuit. Right. But the effect of this is that even if these lawsuits, uh, even if there aren't a shit ton of these lawsuits, they can still force clinics to shut down abortion services. There was actually an example of this uh, earlier, just a couple months ago in Lubbock, Texas. So Lubbock actually passed a very similar um, local uh, law as to this one that was just passed statewide. And uh, a Planned Parenthood in Lubbock, Texas, had actually sued the city to block that local law. And their suit was ultimately dismissed by the judge. So as a result, they had to stop providing abortion services for fear of private individuals being able to mount lawsuits against their clinic. And depending how many of those you're coming up against, you can get completely buried in legal fees and controversy and negative coverage that can also put your clinic at all kinds of risk. So even if these lawsuits don't go anywhere, they present a really significant threat to the existence of clinics that offer these services. Do they have an explanation as to why they wanted to set this up this way, deputizing citizens against each other? What? How did they argue this? So, as I mentioned earlier, there have been many of these heartbeat bills, not just in Texas, but even in my state of Georgia, Mississippi has tried to launch them. Um, there are several states that have attempted to do this. But because abortion is a constant, like, you have a constitutional right. It is federally recognized as such. It's really difficult to pass these kinds of uh, bills sort of following, and I'm not a lawyer here, so I could totally be butchering this explanation. But the way I understand it is that typically when bills of any kind are passed, the potential defendants are people like officials, like your governor, for example, like a tangible person who can be sued or who can be named in a suit. But they wrote this very intentionally so that that couldn't be done. There's Mm. no specific person who can be named in a suit because they've turned the enforcement over to the populace at large, and you can't sue the entire population of the state of Texas over this. <laughs> There's, I don't know if you saw this on TikTok, Laura, but I, I saw the hashtag so random Texas trending over the weekend, and I thought that that was really nice. Um, it's just basically a bunch of uh, ladies saying that they they have a place for uh you know somebody with a uterus in Texas to stay in in a state that so happens to allow abortions that, that they would be willing to front you know the money for a round trip ticket if it was necessary so you know 
this really sucks, but it's nice to see people already trying to get to work to figure out how to, um, you know, work around things or how best to make a difference. And that's really nice to see, especially since the idea of this is very bleak. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up as well, because some private companies are already responding to this. And just to make it really clear, patients can't be sued in this. So if a private citizen decides they've learned that somebody they know, or maybe somebody they don't know at all, had an abortion, um, they would be able to uh, sue doctors, clinics, or Uber drivers, as we mentioned previously. In response to this, Uber and Lyft have committed to covering 100% of their drivers' legal fees if they are sued for transporting patients seeking abortions. Lyft has also announced that they will be donating $1 million to Planned Parenthood. Um, Match Group and Bumble also announced funds to support Texas-based employees seeking abortion care out of state. And GoDaddy also cut off the Texas Right to Life's abortion whistleblowing website, which was a place where you could go <laughs> and anonymously report someone for having an abortion illegally. So that I like. That yes, I really like. 100%. And I know we've weighed in on the show before on private companies flexing their muscles in opposition to other oppressive laws previously. And I'm just wondering are there any other companies that we would like to see taking action at this point? Well, really, I think all of them, just the bar is so low here. <laughs> just how this law was structured. Can you at least come out against that saying, hey, citizens shouldn't be able to sue each other over whether or not they had an abortion? I just think that part is the part because I know abortion is an extremely touchy subject in this country. And that's why so many businesses are probably avoiding jumping in on this discussion. and. Shout out to these ones that Laura just mentioned, because, you know, this is a touchy subject. You're going to piss off a lot of people by coming out against this new law, which is crazy to say. It's not a high bar. No, it's it's not. And really, <laughs> you know, my my view on this is if you're against abortions, then don't have one. Uh, but outside of that, I don't really think that there's anything else to say apart from if you are against abortions and you want to decrease the number of them that happen, there are numerous ways that we can do so, such as funding proper sexual education, stopping with these ridiculous abstinence-only programs in our public classrooms, making sure that people have access and knowledge about the resources to be having safe sex if they are going to have it. Um, there are lots of ways that you can continue to give people control and choice over how they live their lives while not um, trying to take you know, a, a very personal choice away from them ultimately. And there are always going to be cases where somebody needs an abortion, um, which is why it's particularly disgusting to me that this law does not make exceptions for rape or incest victims. And just a reminder here, this was also something we talked about back on uh, episode 722. Uh the Supreme Court is going to be reviewing a similarly restrictive Mississippi abortion law next month, and their decision could overturn Roe v. Wade or severely um, 
dismantle major parts of that infrastructure. So really important to keep an eye on this and be aware of what's going on and use this. If you haven't voted in the last couple of elections, let this be the thing that motivates you to understand how important it is to take part. Because if you don't vote, somebody's going to go vote and they're going to make the decision for you. And people will be appointed to the court who will make decisions that you may not agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, well, speaking of Texas, and I promise Texans, um, I spent a few we love years you, Texans. Living, yeah, no, spent a few years living there as a child. I genuinely love the state of Texas. I think that much like other southern states, it is being held hostage. Um, but I think that there's hope. However, I wanted to mention that since Governor Greg Abbott is so concerned with the right to life, you would think that he wouldn't be blocking mask mandates. Um, But he did sign an executive order in July to, quote, ensure that no government entity can mandate masks. Of course, as a consequence, or it may not be the only result of this, but um, it is one of the consequences that Texas is seeing extremely high um, rates of COVID hospitalizations and deaths. And on a related note to that, <laughs> I wanted to bring up that there has been a 590% jump in poison control calls about the drug ivermectin in Texas. Now, you may be wondering, what is ivermectin? You may have even heard about it on the news or social media. Ivermectin is an anti-parasite product for farm animals. So there are some people who have gotten it into their head that this is an alternative treatment for COVID-19. So some of them have been injecting themselves with horse dewormer. They would rather so they do won't that. Get vaxxed, right. But they're going to vax themselves. Yes. With something unproven and and dangerous. I mean, this is something for a large animal, not a human. It's a whole different. It it will always be mind blowing how some people will decide that they can take they should take this because they see it on Fox News once because they see it in their Facebook feed and they trust that over the FDA, over the Trump administration, over the Biden administration. I can't comprehend it. I can't. I don't know how they square that. Well, despite warnings from both the Food and Drug Administration and the Texas Department of Health Services about ivermectin, State Representative Louis Gohmert touted its use as a COVID treatment at the Texas Youth Conference a couple of weeks ago. So the fact that there are multiple elected officials who won't uh, firmly say that this is not the right way to treat COVID-19 might be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, Texans, you're not alone here. Poison control centers nationally saw a 245 percent increase in the same kinds of calls between July and August. So it's definitely not just happening in Texas. Um, I also wanted to highlight that the Food and Drug Administration tweeted last month, you are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all. Stop it. <laughs> Reminds me of that guy who got on Zoom. And he had like a, like a, what was it? Like a rabbit overlay? No, a cat, a cat. overlay on his face. And he's yeah. like, I'm not a cat. Wait, wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sounds like something a cat would say. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really disturbing about this is that there are other majorly influential personalities who are um, 
promoting this myth. So Joe Rogan has promoted tons of COVID misinformation over the last year on his viral podcast. And he also recently promoted his alleged use of ivermectin in response to contracting COVID. And it also seems that provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos might be doing the same. He posted pictures alluding to the um, suggestion that he might have also injected himself with this drug. Um, and I wanted to say this. I don't have anything to report back, but I'm hoping to bring um, some funnies for next week. I took one for the team and joined a Facebook group that is promoting, quote, COVID early treatments, um, including ivermectin. And I'm proud to say they admitted me, which means they they didn't really look too closely into my Facebook profile. Um, (laughs) Did they ask you any questions? Yes. Yes, they did. So the first question was, uh, are you you a horse? (laughs) Nay. Um, so, So they were like. Have you had COVID-19? And if so, have you used any alternative treatments? And I was like, yes, I used zinc and a butt ton of vitamin C. And then there was another question that was like, do you think these treatments should be widely available to everyone? And I said, yes, keep America free. Oh, no. And they let, it was it was too easy. It was too easy. Guys, come on. Really? But I was already scrolling through it and seeing some crazy shit. So for time this week, we're not going to go through it. But I kind of want to share some of it next week. (laughs) How many members were in this group? Like a few thousand. Okay. Does it seem like a newer group? I'm wondering if Facebook will be taking this down at some point or is this a gray area for them? Because I guess it's okay to discuss alternative treatments, but nobody's in there verifying if these treatments actually work. And this is exactly how ivermectin takes off. Groups like this where people can share probably misinformation on the effectiveness of these treatments. I will say that um, I'm looking at the group right now. There are 2000 members currently and Facebook does have a banner at the top of the group saying get the facts about coronavirus. And it gives a little disclaimer about um, how you should check out multiple sources and they have a link to see more info. So I think that's their attempt Laura, we need to spread a rumor in this group about a particular thing that you drink or eat that you believe has saved you from COVID. Like we can spread a rumor about something harmless, like like Diet Coke or, you know, Taco Bell. Spice. Pumpkin yeah. Spice. Yeah. Talk about how the syrup <laughs> has a lot of health benefits that help you avoid uh, the common cold every winter. And See, you caught I, COVID, but thanks to the PSL, your symptoms were really undetectable. No, I think what we can do is be like, guys, I discovered this amazing preventative step that you can take to protect yourselves against COVID 19. And um, very like loosely and generically describe our experience getting vaccines and provide people with like <laughs> oh links to go. Sign up for that. It has 94% yeah. and just take bets on how long it takes for you to get booted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. So have... you got to walk a fine line. They put a post in here today that was like, any left-wing trolls will be booted immediately. <laughs> oh, rah, 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 rah. Fuck you. You're I'm all like, trolls. You clearly didn't do a very good job of vetting the people you let into this group. Yeah. My banner photo is John Oliver blowing up the 2020 <laughs> sign. 
I get you. I guess oh if they're really white right wing, they might not know who John Oliver is. Yeah. So it's fair. <laughs> or they're like, oh, I agree with that. Yeah. Fuck 2020. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody can agree with that. <laughs> oh man. That's funny. Well, yeah. Don't yeah, don't take horse steam warmers. I doubt any of our listeners were on the fence about doing something like that, but just in case. I just don't get how you would trust such a thing. I really, I really don't. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a moment. But first, I wanted to share a quick word from one of our sponsors, Third Love. Some of you may know that I've been out of my home for a year waiting on some repairs. And I'm back now and really enjoying the familiarity of being home and the sense of being in a brand new space at the same time. I feel this way about Third Love, too. They're the best fitting and most reliable bras I've ever owned, and I recently invested in a couple of brand new bras to treat myself. Just to make sure my fit was still right, I used Third Love's Fitting Room Quiz, which gives customized recommendations based on your fit needs and style preferences. It was so nice to return to that familiar routine, but get something new and different to incorporate into my wardrobe. The new bras fit perfectly and are just as comfortable as I've come to expect from Third Love. And you can count on that fit whether you need wireless bras for casual days or some additional lift with Third Love's number one best-selling 24-7 classic t-shirt bra. Either way, you'll get the comfort and support you need in a variety of sizes. And Third Love stands by their products. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free. Third Love knows you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24-7, so right now they are offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash millennial now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash millennial for 20% off today. All right, Pam, well, help us lighten the mood a little more, too. We can gossip about an artist. Let's talk about Olivia Rodrigo, who I'm sure that most of you are at least aware of because she's just been blowing up the airwaves uh, all summer long with her debut album, Sour. Um, She's had a bunch of hit singles, Driver's License, Deja Vu. But today I want to talk about Good For You, uh, which has garnered a lot of buzz since the album dropped in August, uh, specifically because the Internet immediately started making uh, connections between Olivia's Good For You and Paramore's 2007 pop punk hit Misery Business. So... Now, Olivia Rodrigo has retroactively given songwriting credits to both Haley Williams and Josh Farrow uh, for Good For You. So they are now listed as co-creators on a song that they uh, was originally only credited to her and her producer, um, which doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. But it is when you take a look at like the monetary value of this because reportedly she's given up 50% of royalties, which means that they could actually be cashing in at over a million dollars. And a lot of people are actually crediting the internet's obsession with the similarities between these two songs, discussing whether or not she, you know, copied Paramore or not with giving the publisher a leg to stand on in terms of going forward with with filing a claim to to get some money out of Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, so I'm sure that most of us have heard both of these songs. But just to refresh, we're going to play 
uh, clips from both back to back so we can kind of get a feel for why the Internet has been discussing and debating whether or not Olivia copied Paramore. So here's good for you. And now, here is Misery Business. So what's going on there, Pam? So I think what people are getting mixed up with here is what this really means. And when you start to look at the nitty gritty of like music theory and also music copyright, um, you start to kind of realize why there have been so many uh, copyright claim cases coming up in music specifically within the last few years. Um, so with Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You, uh, the main takeaway, the main thing that you should be taking away from this is that it's not necessarily a sample. And it's not that Olivia has necessarily copied Paramore's misery business. Uh, they're actually being credited uh, for an interpolation use. And that is a phrase that you might not be familiar with. So basically what an interpolation is, is when parts of a record's melody have been re-recorded and turned into something new. Uh, so I have an example here of an interpolation that I think we should play before we go on and talk about what sampling is. Uh, so the first track is uh, Gary Lowe's I Want You. And Andrew's going to play that now. And if that sounds familiar, it's probably because you might have been a fan of Portlandia, who used Washed Out's Feel It All Around as their theme song. So this song was really big for a while as well. And Andrew's going to play that for us right now. I definitely hear that similarity. Yeah, exactly. So the difference there, though, is that the BPM is a little bit slower. Um, it's a little bit lower. And so that is basically what an interpolation is. Uh, a sample is when somebody merely lifts a piece of an original song and incorporates it into their own. So I've pulled the example of Seven Rings by Ariana Grande and My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music. Here's Seven Rings. Yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's and bottles of bubbles Girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble Lashes and diamonds, ATM machines Buy myself all of my favorite things And with a sample, you hear it and immediately you're like, oh, yes, that's exactly, exactly from this song Raindrops on roses, 
and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Now, Julie Andrews is actually Ariana Grande's grandmother. So that one was okay and nobody had any problem with it. <laughs> yeah, so so it's it is actually kind of interesting because sampling is a lot easier for people to get sued for, especially if you don't get permission to uh, use the sample. Uh, so Justin in the Discord is bringing up the iconic vanilla ice example. You know, Ice Ice Baby clearly lifted a sample from under pressure. Um, and and so that's where the water kind of gets a little bit murky here. Because an interpolation could actually fly below the radar, depending on what part of the song you use. You don't always have to go through the publisher. Sometimes it's okay to just go through like the the co-writer or the producer or whoever worked on the track. And if it's uh, it falls under fair use, you might not actually have to give away too many royalties. And there's a lot less red tape to to cut through in order to make that work for you. So like I said, this is kind of a, a big deal because this is the third time that Olivia Rodrigo has had to retroactively give songwriting credit after the release Oop. of her album for an interpolation use. Um, one that she actually did, like she had been talking about as an interpolation is uh, her song One Step Forward, Three Steps Back, which is an interpolation of Taylor Swift's New Year's Day. Uh, there's another more murkier uh instance of this with Deja Vu, which is her song, and Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer. Oh. And so the reason that this is kind of a big deal is that, it, it, like I said, it kind of starts to set a dangerous precedent for who can claim copyright or royalties or songwriting credits on what songs. And, and even though sampling without permission is wrong, you look at a case with something like Blurred Lines, uh, they were sued by the Marvin Gaye estate, and the Gaye estate basically just sued them because they felt like Blurred Lines had a similar feel to Gaye's Gotta Give It Up. So it's a much more obvious example of interpolation, but it's still interpolation. And so then you kind of have to start to wonder whether it's okay to like basically sue somebody for a vibe. <laughs> in terms of like copyright infringement, which is very hard because there's only so many chords. Um, and right. especially if you're d dabbling in like a specific genre like pop punk, a lot of that music sounds the same. And I say that with love, yeah. you know, and I'm sure Laura can speak to that as well as the, as a punk and a pop punk aficionado. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. There's only so many <laughs> sounds you can create, right? And I actually remember seeing this uh, about uh, Misery Business and Good For You going around on TikTok where people were making the comparison. And Pam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the comparison is more between Olivia Rodrigo's vocals and the instrumental track of Misery Business. Those are the things that share yeah. similarities is that what's going on pretty much yeah I, th I think that like the her her vocal choice in misery business and it's interesting you bring that up because as a sidebar that's basically why taylor swift and jack antonoff and saint Vis vincent got in retroactive songwriting credits for deja vu it's because of the way that she scream sings in the in the bridge of that song is like too similar to to cruel summer and so with something like Misery Business, even though the chords are maybe the same, but a little bit 
different in terms of the way that they've been arranged. The way that she sings a song in that pop punk type of style does not help. But I think that what people kind of forget about this is that, you know, Paramore, when they burst onto the scene, there really wasn't a mainstream band that had their vibe with a female lead singer. And so not everything that's come after Paramore is automatically compared to Haley Williams and her vocal styling, especially if you're even like leaning towards that genre, which is a, you know, a stylistic choice that Rodrigo and her producer made for the track. Right. And Rodrigo is also, I mean, she's 18 now, right? But she's effectively a child. And to me, it doesn't seem unusual at all that someone that young and that artistic might be emulating other artists that they admire. And as long as people are above board about it and, you know, she's retroactively giving that credit, I would hope that there wouldn't need to be any additional drama beyond that. But Pam, I don't know, have these have these other artists, Taylor Swift and Haley Williams, have they become embroiled in this or was it something that was settled amicably? So it was definitely settled outside of court because, like I said, the legal proceedings can be really pricey and they can also go on for a very long time. Um, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but the the Blur Lines lawsuit went on for quite a few months yes. um, yeah. and they deliberated a lot. Also, uh, Katy Perry was also involved in a legal battle over Dark Horse for a similar reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's just easier to try to settle amicably. Uh, but the thing that people have to remember is that it's not necessarily like Taylor Swift and Haley Williams, uh, you know, going after royalties for Olivia's music. More often than not, it's going to be the publisher or the record mm-hmm. label or somebody, you know, in the upper management level that sees an opportunity. And in the case of Good For You, I think that, you know, you bringing up TikTok is a very good point because I don't think it helped matters. And I think it was really easy for them to point to all of the mashups on TikTok that were making this comparison and say, well, like, look, the general public is already, you know, noticing the similarities. So you might as well give us songwriting credit or we're going to take you to court. And that's why these court cases are a little bit wonky as well, because just the nature of the way that we select our juries in this country, you're not going to have a panel of music experts talking about, <laughs> you know, right. um, the the uh, finite details of music theory <laughs> and stuff like that. They're just going to hear two tracks and think, well, it sounds similar enough and everybody else thinks that they have the same song. So, like, we might as well just side with with the person that, you yeah. know has has come in and said that it's the same song to me it's just embarrassing that they have to retroactively do this if they did this from launch okay that was part of the plan but by doing it retroactively you're kind of admitting that you wanted to sneak it under the wire and i wouldn't blame olivia necessarily for these instances somebody else probably wrote the song right i haven't looked at these credits so i don't know for sure but Other people were involved around her. Other people, at the least, could have advised her differently. So I I don't blame her for this. Uh, That said, it's not a good look to have to do this after the fact. It's kind of funny because her newest single is uh, called Brutal. It's the opening track for her album. 
And out of all of the songs that people have pointed to, you know, saying, oh, she copied this artist, she copied that artist. I think like, that's the one that really sounds like it was just completely lifted. Oh. Um, and it actually sounds a lot like Elvis Costello's uh, Pump It Up. But oh, when somebody brought this to Elvis Costello's attention, he replied on Twitter and said, it's how rock and roll works. This is fine by me. You take a broken piece of another thrill and make it a brand new toy. So okay. there are a lot of big name artists that are saying, you know, like, this is how music works. It's it's uh, collaborative by nature, especially if you're working in a specific genre, because, you know, there's only so many chords and, and I right. did it. So like the new generation should be able to to have that sandbox as well and play around in it. I have seen other people bring up this argument. Maybe we've already invented every song possible at this point, because there are like Pam has mentioned a couple of times now, only so many chords. So maybe this is just going to be a more and more common occurrence. I feel like that's a bit of an extreme take, but I think it's somewhat of a valid concern, especially within the same genres. And that's why, honestly, I think interpolation and sampling when it's done the right way is a fantastic tool because, you know, music is really created to make you feel something and if that something is you know nostalgia that's that's one of the most intense emotions anybody can feel um but a lot of you know interpolation if it's done right is is really finding cool ways to to make something old new again and and i think that 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 can be really cool i agree and honestly i've been a fan of elvis costello for a really long time and i did not know that that had been his response to this and that just makes me like him even more because I tend to agree more with him. I mean, you know, I think that if it does come up, um, if somebody does notice after the fact, hey, there are some pretty big similarities between these songs, I think it's perfectly fine to address it. But I don't know that it needs to be seen as this nefarious intent, like you intentionally tried to copy this because how often do we think creative people are exposed to other creative ideas that just sort of naturally influence them. I think it's entirely possible that some of this may have happened completely unintentionally. And it's really fun to see somebody else's influences shine through in their music. Um, You know, a lot of times you hear artists talk about their influences. It's like, even like heavy metal dudes are all influenced by the Beatles in some way. And I just think it's really neat to see how that influence uh, has like carried over into their music, even if it sounds nothing the same, or even if it does, I I still think that that's really neat. Indeed. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that, Pam. Time for some recommendations. I want to recommend the other two. This is a half hour comedy about two young adults whose young brother, who's like a teen, has become a huge music star. And it follows these two young adults trying to make it big themselves while also battling the fact that their brother is so big. Have either of you seen the show? I saw a trailer for it and I thought it looked really fun. Same. It is probably one of the funniest TV shows I've ever seen. Season two is currently airing on HBO Max. Please go and start with season season one, which is also now on HBO Max, and then go into season two. Also co-stars Molly Shannon. She seems to have a bigger role in season two. Oh, my God. Like I said, so damn funny, but it's also feel good. It's also heartfelt. It's got some good messages in it. This show should be getting as much attention as Schitt's Creek did. 
It's just that funny. I wanted to recommend investing in a sound machine if you, like me, have trouble sleeping or if you move to a place that's much quieter than wherever you were living before. Um, so I just picked one up on Amazon. I honestly just went for the cheapest one I could find because I wasn't sure if it was going to work for me. Um, but I've really been enjoying it. It's just really helpful to focus on, you know, whatever sound I pick uh, instead of focusing on whatever my mind wants to spiral over in the middle of the night. Um, so I like the rain sounds. So I, I went ahead and, and sampled some of the, the noises that the sound machine makes and picked one with a rain sound that I really liked. And I've really been enjoying it. So try that out if you also have insomnia. I need noise to sleep. I hate sleeping yeah. in dead silence. Yeah. Pam, I'm going to so need hard. you to drop a link to okay. this. I need one so bad. Yeah, I'm telling you, I bought one that was like 20 bucks or under. So it's no frills, but I will drop a link. Perfect. Uh, And based on today's conversation, I wanted to recommend if you're looking for um, somewhere to make a charitable donation, this would be a great week to make a donation to Planned Parenthood. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please do leave us a review. You can also contact us by writing directly to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. Like somebody did the other day, we got this confessional. So I was scooping out a member of the Facebook group only to have the realization that it was Pat. Andrew's boyfriend, LOL. I guess he's not straight. Get it, Andrew. Well, thank you, confessional writer. Yes, it's true. Pat is pretty attractive. I can see why you may have seen that small (laughs) thumbnail and then thought, who's that cutie? And then you realized it was my boyfriend who's taken. But don't worry, we're launching our OnlyFans soon. So stay tuned. (laughs) And last but not least, do follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're about to jump into After Dark. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.